0: Our goal in the Austin Climate Equity Plan, by 2030, what, seven years? 40% of all vehicle miles travel is going to be an electric platform. So that is taking a huge shift in not only personal ownership, public transit, logistics to get to 40% EVMT by 2030. That is a huge number to get in that amount. This week's guest is Carl Popham.
1: Carl co-founded and continues to lead the team spearheading Austin's aggressive shift to transportation electrification. Carl's Electric Vehicles and Emerging Technologies team was founded in 2011. Through a combination of high-impact programs, projects, policy and partnerships, Austin Energy has been recognized as Drive Electric Utility of the Year by Plug in America, and Austin was recognized as e-visionary City of North America by Electric Drive Transportation Association. I saw Carl present at Electrify Expo here in Austin last November. So I'm really excited to be able to sit down and hear more about the transformational work he and his team are doing and how other cities can follow
0: his lead. Carl, welcome to the Impossible Network. Hey, Mark. Pleasure to be here. And thank you coming to uh, the event here in Austin to talk about all things EV. Perfect. I can't wait. And probably a bit beyond
1: EVs, we might even touch on sustainable cities. So, leading transformation and change in people and organizations and cities is no mean feat. Change for anything at the best of time is challenging. Can we start by beginning to understand a bit more about your actual, your personal journey and how you develop the, sort of the values, the characteristics, the skills that have led you to this point to be able to drive electrification transformation in one of America's fastest growing cities? Perhaps you could maybe just reflect
0: on that. Well, certainly. So youngest of six children raised by parents who were very liberal and very Catholic at the same time. And being the youngest of six kids, I think you have to be a little louder or more obnoxious to get attention. And so maybe that just had some groundwork to trying to get attention for, for programs. I would, I would also say is my parents always encouraged us to be working as kids. I've had pretty much a job of some sort since age 13 till till today. And I one time overheard my parents talking to their friends about how did all six of your kids go to, you know, finish college and you you didn't financially support any of them. And they said we made sure they had jobs, hard jobs growing up as kids. And I was kind of eavesdropping. They did do that. So I feel a little tricked there. And so at age 17, started college at UT, University of Texas here in Austin. I only applied to one school. I didn't think you were born in born in Texas? I was born in Iowa, but at age 10, I moved to Texas outside of Austin. So I always just knew in my heart, UT is where I was going to go. Didn't apply anywhere else. Got accepted. Started at 17 and then enrolled in the army at 18 to help pay for it. And so I kind of learned two things and then also joined up the ROTC program, which is an officer training program at the college level. And I guess really in college, I learned very quickly. I liked teamwork and working with others. My role as an enlisted member in the military was an intelligence analyst. And really what you learn as an intelligence analyst fundamentally is the difference between data and information. And that has stuck in my heart. This whole journey is and I when I talk to, you know, even very smart people or or pitch decks, a lot of times they get those words confused. And I'm a kind of a stickler for it. And as an analyst, you you generally have three sources of data, human intelligence, imagery, or communication interception. And you put all that into fundamentally tell a story. You tell a story that's timely so commanders in real time can understand what's going on in the battlefield and react accordingly or plan accordingly at the very least. And so that kind of stuck with me through through the college years, I guess. Can I just ask, so this was the ar- Army? correct. And so I was an intelligence analyst in a reserve component here in Austin at Camp Mabry. while I was going to college, why I was also an ROTC. So I had a bunch of different things going on. So typically, my college experience. So, what were you studying in college at UT? So, I got a degree in business. I started in engineering, and then, but I also realized I have much more interest in the social and the people aspects of technical stuff and technology then the engineering stuff itself so even though as an officer i was in the u.s army corps of engineers so that's very engineering focused my degree is in in business actually in marketing of all things and i really realized very quickly that that's kind of what i like about these technologies the people is the people aspect of things once
1: you finished your degree did you actually go into the army and do any sort of active service
0: Yeah, so all in, I had about 11 years military service, a combination of reserve and active duty. Two of those years were active duty right out of college. So my first job was as a construction project officer for the Army Corps of Engineers. So that was my full-time job. But even while I had the full-time job, I still had a reserve component, which was the typical military roles of combat platoon leader, executive officer, company commander, and then an instructor at the officer candidate school for the Texas Military Academy. So I kind of had two jobs and functions, but full-time and mostly in construction and then starting to get into technology projects as a Corps of Engineers project officer. And then I still had a commitment on weekends and summers to do more classic, I guess, military roles, combat roles. Mm -hmm. And at that
1: stage, did you have any sort of longer-term ambition about where you thought your career was going to take you, or early interest in transformation, the areas that you've proceeded to get into further down your career in corporate?
0: I envisioned a a career in the military, but I also served during a time which was called BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure Act. So that was during the Clinton administration, and we were actively shuttering down and reducing headcount, shuttering bases. I might've been one of the few Corps of Engineer project officers that bought land during that time. I was a project officer to, to purchase some additional military land in the state of Texas, but I just wasn't seeing the, the career path trajectory during that time. Cause it was a, overall it was a business that was, that was, that was shrinking during that time. And then I started getting interested in computers and technology. So being in the Corps of Engineers, you're also associated with the facilities, team, if you will. Facilities director is what we called it. And they started rolling out local area networks, wide area networks, new computer technologies, and first-generation internet technologies. And I was all in on that. I thought it was fascinating. And then a pivotal moment for me is, so we we're installing these early internet technologies, and the internet, when it was first rolling out, or at least its early phase, looked completely different. It was a lot about FTP and Telnet. So file transfer protocol, Telnet for a GUI. Exactly. Before a GUI. And it was, but you still get a lot of information. It was very kind of search database type. And then I happened to accept a meeting called introduction to port 80. And what's that? So I went to that and port 80 is the introduction of what we know as the world wide web. It's HTTP and it just shows the visualization of all the technologies. And I knew immediately. I'm going to pursue a career. This is the next big innovation, and I want to be part of it. So that one meeting put me on a completely different trajectory. So what I did is I just visualized wanting to move forward in that, got some certifications, and then went into consulting. And that was while you were in the Army, you got the certifications? Sure did. the Army, and generally I would say public service, I find that as well because I'm a a city employee now. Civil service in general, public service is a great way to get education and and learn. But frankly, I also found that in private industry. But but yes, to answer your question, yes. And then that launched a eight-year career in consulting, technology consulting, because I just knew, and specifically around e-commerce, web-enabled, so worked with some of the largest technology consulting companies in the world. For some of the largest companies in the world to really bring on e-commerce strategies. I wrote a white paper about, it was titled, it was about first-generation web-enabled phones because the term smartphone hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) But I knew with all the technologies going on port 80 and then the surgence of personal devices that we needed to have a strategy there. But the term hadn't existed yet. So I just had a lot of opportunities to do some very cool work in that field over that eight-year consulting career. It's
1: funny you mention that. I was working at the time between London and San Francisco around 98, 99 with Nokia mobile phones and Nokia enterprise solutions as well. And I remember them doing a presentation to us around the future of mobile, um, about video voice and data and showing all these amazing videos and going back to the agency and sort of explaining People going, why would I ever want to watch a movie on a bus or a train? For goodness sake, who's ever going to do that? What do you need data for? What, it's a mobile phone. F- it's a phone. <laughs> like, you have no idea what's coming down the line very, very soon.
0: Yeah, and I, I think we had a similar experience. I mean, I, I worked and lived in London right around 2000. My client was Lehman Brothers. And so that was a little bit of a financial implosion during the financial cl- But it really also gave me a real good insight. In what a company like Lehman Brothers was trying to do with this technology and also an appreciation of different cultures. And so when they did, it didn't surprise me based on their culture. They'd sabotage the analysts would sabotage each other. So one of my, one of my roles there was to launch Lehman Live and Lehman Live and also Lehman Warrants. So Lehman Live was their new portal strategy globally and they were really pushing to widen the type of investor. Historically, Lehman Brothers was high net worth individuals, kind of focused on there. But this was to widen participation and use technology to help widen their reach and leverage the brand. And so Lehman Live, the portal, which was my project when I was working over there, was one of those. And what I discovered there interviewing all the analysts and all the subject matter experts in their field is they didn't trust each other. They didn't like each other. They're very focused. For example, one analyst He's like, I want, instead of going to Lehman Live, I want them to go to my name, com, because I, you know, the branding's, I'm the brand here. And I'm like, well, you know, but some of the other analysts might disagree with that, and we're trying to do a corporate strategy. He goes, well, I've already bought all the names of all the other analysts. I own them, so they can't do it. So, if anything, they can go to my <laughs> site, too. And that just really triggered a realization of how that financial company was working and so when I saw the implosion later down the line, I didn't think they just had a strong foundation. And obviously there's, there's much bigger aspects they were getting into derivatives of, of the housing market, et cetera. But I would say the foundation is the, the human aspect of, of kind of their culture. Granted, I was just a consultant, just scratching at the surface, but walking around and going into each, you know, consistent going to different clients offices to talk about launching business to consumer platform to kind of revolutionize Women Live, I got a lot of insights from those analysts. So
1: this whole trajectory that you've been on to take you to where you are today has been always at, on the cusp of change, trying to drive behavior change, adoption, of new technologies. What have you learned about human behavior during that time in terms of just your observations from inside corporates, from the early days in the army to now in terms of what are the Why
0: do people resist change? Well, I think one key thing is one message doesn't fit all. And even before you know, we were talking, I was trying to get a concept of, of your audience here. And is it more of a general audience? Is it focused audience? When I speak to a group, I first kind of want to understand where their foundation is. I have a completely different set of talking points to maybe a policymaker that's interested in climate change. Then I do an auto dealership that's trying to move units out the door. So one, as I would say, is be very open to tailoring your message with the foresight of what is important to the person you're talking to. People who have standardized messaging. They're 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 more about what are the talking points important to me and my organization. And I would say step one is is understanding the recipient and then tailoring your message there. So I think tailoring message is very important. Um, one of the companies I worked for was one of the largest technology outsourcing companies in the world. And so when you outsource, that is a huge change to an organization. You might be, and my boss at the time, who was a, who was a, a reservist admiral, he had a saying that kind of stuck with me a little bit. And here's his change management. When you're going and doing a big outsourcing, you're really disrupting organizations. Sometimes people are, changing even who their company is, et cetera. And he had a simple saying, he said, Carl, you either change the person or you change the person. And, and that kind of stuck with me. And so when you're looking at programmatically changing innovation or fundamentally changing, you you really is that you have two, two approaches. You can change the person or you can change the person. And ideally you want to first change the person before you have to change the person. But those are fundamentally the two strategic approaches or even tactical approaches you have in organizational change yeah it's it 's funny just think about the
1: amount of times i've worked in agencies and witnessed the certainly during this parallel track as you talk about of going through these transformations and working as an outsourcing you work with so many clients that talk about digital transformation and there's always the big mistake I think that so many organizations make is the they put in place a person called Innovation Officer or Chief Digital Transformation Officer, and everyone else is going, "Oh, so that makes me like the laggard i 've got nothing to do with it then so you're the, you're the heroes and i I had the same situation. I was hired by one agency to create a digital team, and I said, "Well, the problem with that is that everyone that's not in the digital team thinks they're not digital, so you try to tell them that there's the, it's a them and us mentality, and what you 've got to do is you 've got to infuse digital thinking and digital behaviours vertically and horizontally across the organization. So by creating titles, immediately you're creating a barrier. And it is interesting that sort of there you make the mistake that then usually leads to not changing the person and changing the person as a result of that mismanagement. And I just think it there's I mean the reason I'm raising this is that, you know, what we're we face and in a broader sense, not just what you're doing here with in Austin, is Behaviour change at scale in the world. If we are going to avert a climate crisis, even whether a person believes or denies that it's human caused, we have got to do something to avert the increases in, in temperature. And that does involve both collective and individual change. And so understanding the, the intricacies of change and how do you get people on board and tell stories that inspire them, I think is really important. And that's why I'm interested to, to hear what you're doing and how you're approaching here in Austin. So maybe we could, we could jump into the work you're doing in Austin. I said at the beginning in the intro, making great strides and having a huge impact, specifically in, in areas of these. And before we chatted, I sent you, I finished a book by John Dewar called Speed and Scale that talked about this, this, the scale of the changes that we're, we're having to make. And he makes a point that we are, we are transforming as culture, as countries, as cities as neighborhoods, but it's not at the speed and the scale that we have to, if we're going to avert it. So if we, and you can throw stats at people as much as you want, and I've seen this from other guests, and one in particular, a guy called Joshua Spoddick, I interviewed in New York, who has a podcast called The Sustainable Life, and he tries to get people to change individual behaviors, but it's, stats don't work, it's stories that change behavior, I I believe, especially when contextualized and made relevant at local level. So, given that you're on the forefront of creating more than trans- transportation and electrification, you're building a compelling story for people. And I, you delivered that story brilliantly at Electrify Expo in Austin. So, I'm just wondering if you could maybe sort of just explain a bit more about your approach and, and the and the task that you've taken on and and the work that you're doing.
0: Well, certainly, I I, I love. The work and the opportunity I I get to do here in the city of Austin in transportation electrification, I do agree with your premise. Stats don't change hearts and mind. It's also fundamentally easier to fool someone than to convince someone they've been fooled. And stats does not move a wedge into someone who already is cemented in, especially in much more siloed ecosystems that exist today. And there's a whole bevy of reasons why we have these siloed ecosystems, everything from YouTube algorithms to understand the longer you watch something, the more engagement. And so rather than giving you different perspectives, well, it knows you like this perspective on this thing and you're going to watch it longer and just kind of feeding that cycle on and on. So I, I guess I'll start back in the EV space. I've been doing this an incredibly long time, 11 years so people don't really think about electric vehicles going back that far. You know, if you actually look
1: at the history of them, you know, there was an electric vehicle created by um, General Motors way back in the nineties. It didn't lead anywhere. That,
0: that's right. Those are the original OG. I'm like a uh, second phase where we had 300 EVs in our territory. We now add about 24,000. And at that time, I was already working at the utility Austin Energy. We're the third largest city owned utility in the U.S. In IT, So I was leveraging my previous experience in e-commerce and IT to include being the interim chief information officer for eight months. And then I had another pivotal moment, just like I did on the port 80 demonstration where I realized that was going to be huge. One of the first current generation EVs, a Tesla Roadster, an owner showed me his EV and he just went through it and he, he knew the batteries, he knew the car. And what convinced me this was the next big thing is not necessarily what he was saying, but his passion on it and how much he loved this EV. And he would tell anyone and everyone when you have that dedicated of a customer experience. And I think the core technologies were fundamentally better. The physics is better. I knew that was the, that was going to be huge. So when I had the opportunity to kind of leave the IT part of the business and join a small team that was being founded called Electric Vehicles Emerging Technologies, my colleagues thought I was nuts. (laughs) They said that team is the flavor of the month. It won't be around for 12 months. Why are you doing it? You know, you have this great career in IT. But at some point, you know, what drives me in my pivotal moments is a real personal interest in something And I was driving a real personal interest in that EV space. I also liked the fact it had the word emerging technologies that gave me a license to hunt to anything else. And over the years, we've hunted a lot of things outside of the EV space that's of interest to us. So, and no one had ever done it before, at least that, that specific team, there had already been some EV work, some strategic work and obviously emerging technologies. But that was a brand new team being formed with its own org and resources and budget. And I said, I wanted to lead that because there wasn't expectations of what you're supposed to do. So I really like kind of a clean slate opportunities like that.
1: Drove the decision within a, 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 ut- a city-based utility to focus on uh, electric vehicles and emerging technologies, because a lot of people would be surprised that a utility would would take that on as a, a, a strategy, a, to try and drive adoption or was it really just for your own fleet reasons
0: now it was for climate action so the predecessors before me to include our general manager very passionate and that's just part of the dna and culture of austin you also have to look how we're governed we're governed by city council and so austin has always been very pro-climate very grassroots activism save our springs and that is, and, and fortunately, I've, I've been able to be a part of that ecosystem in a lot of ways outside looking in just by being a college student in Austin, starting through 86 and 90s, living in Austin, et cetera. And so one is when you look at emissions, especially in Austin and U.S., the, the big the big gorillas are transportation and, and buildings, so electricity and energy for buildings, and then the emissions in the transportation sector. So I think that's really at its core. So our general manager, Roger Duncan, who championed the, this early work, he, he did a meeting in Detroit and was kind of pitching electric vehicles. And his approach was to get soft orders from other city, city fleets saying, basically, if you build this, if you build this plug-in electric vehicle, we'll buy them and pitched it to some, some high level general, high level executives in Detroit. And the reporting states that when he, when he was finished, one of the executives said, that is the most dangerous man in our industry alive today. <laughs> and how has that changed? Now you see General Motors, they've changed their logo. The M now looks like an electric plug and all. And, uh, and
1: Mary Barros put it out there and she's made a commitment that no going, going back,
0: back forward with the F-150 lightning taking the, the, the U.S.'s number one car brand in the U S and going all in and capitalizing on the lightning and and et cetera. So it's completely changed, but that was kind of the ecosystem that I launched in, you know, we had this small group. And so really it was about how my team acted like a startup embedded in a large utility, relatively large, large public utility, semi-large overall utility about right now we have about 2000 full-time employees, 400 or so contractors, 1.4 billion a year. So to give you perspective when I say large or, or medium. And uh, we acted like a startup. And I'd worked for some startups in my journey a little bit, but more more, more directly, I worked in a lot of change-the-person, change-the-person strategies in e-commerce and web-enabled. So I took that philosophy, and we became a barrier-busting organization. And what a lot of startups do is they focus on market share. So we didn't get down the trenches on instantly, well, where's the the revenue generation? It was, let's look at all the barriers for rapid adoption and how we can help those. And that over time evolved into our five pillar strategy, which is a very wide ecosystem. There's nothing that we don't hear about a barrier that we won't try to tackle. The obvious stuff is, stuff directly related to the utility. We do infrastructure. You know, we started with 130 charging stations. We're now at 1600. But then there's stuff like customer experience at dealerships. That'd be very easy for a utility to say, well, I hope they fix that. No, well, we created a whole program called the EVs Buyer's Guide and Engagement Platform with the local dealerships. So if we think, if we discover anything that's a barrier or permitting and that's why we have the five pillar strategies very wide. We will work to resolve it.
1: Cause I isn't really enlightened. I, and before moving to Austin, I was going around a lot of dealerships in New York, basically being a secret buyer to test out their EV sales strategies. And the amount, the level of ignorance was astounding at dealerships, not just, I'm not just talking about the, sort of the Fords and the GMs across the whole range of organizations. That have committed to accelerating their EV sales. And yet the dealerships and clearly, you know, dealerships are different in every, you know, different regions and different ownership structures. But it was shocking at the, just the, and it might have, okay, I could accept that some people had said to me, well, it's because there isn't stock and they're trying to sell you a nice internal combustion vehicle instead because they don't have the stock and they're just chasing the sale. But it was a lack of knowledge that really surprised me. And when I came to Austin to try and then buy one and ended up buying not an EV because they didn't have a Mini in stock at the time that I wanted, the same thing happened. There wasn't really the level of knowledge around the sort of... Getting to the real sort of nuts and bolts as to the uncertainties and the barriers that people have around range anxiety, around charging infrastructure. There wasn't a great deal of knowledge in some of the... The dealers i went to speak to and i went to the Volkswagens, i went to the fords so it is enlightened that a, a utility would take that on when normally you would think it would be the oems the fords and the sort of the the gms and the hyundai's that would do that i mean that's is this it, it, are you an outlier in the country are there others adopting what you're doing
0: well we're trying to encourage others to adopt i do believe specifically that we're we're an outlier in that We've received several national awards on the buyer's guide about being innovation and kind of first of its kind. I also know we combine two technology platforms, Zappy Ride, who is a great organization that's helped doing the the portal, as well as Chargeway, who does in-store kiosk and has an embedded knowledge of car dealerships. And we were the first city to ever combine those two in a platform. Kind of to our earlier discussion, it was also important to understand the talking points to, to dealers. When there was a phone conversation that really helped change my thinking, specifically, we did the same thing. So we had buyers go out and whatnot, and we saw all the same things with a few notable exceptions, but typically, misinformation, you know, not knowing the, the incentives, not knowing range, not knowing tra- just a hard push that you don't want that. And so we had a, a colleague of mine who was calling uh, these managers and saying, hey, we, you know, we want to do some outreach with some ideas on programming. We're the city of Austin utility. And he had one conversation. And after 15 minutes, my colleague said, and by the way, we've helped a, a dealership in town, Town North Nissan, you know, collaborating with them. They've sold it was something like 40 units of EVs in a month. And they're the largest sell of EVs in the central Midwest. And the person on their phone said, I- I'm sorry. Could you just start all over, all over from the beginning? And that's when we realized it's all about units sold. And there is a lot of myths in the dealership myths. I'll tell you right now is the, the fundamental, it's not the dealers make more money in oil changes versus that. So they're sabotaged. That is all myth. You, the salespeople don't talk to the maintenance people. At the end of the day, when we did a lot of research prior to launching the buyer's guide, It was fundamentally you're asking a salesperson to spend more time and get paid less. What we call an unnatural act. And salespeople, the ones that are successful and stay salespeople don't do things like spend more time and get paid less. So, you know, we talked about metrics and how they don't move the needle, but I'll give you a little metric here. Typical internal combustion engine sales cycle is about 40 minutes. Talk about, you're talking about the, you know, the color, and, you know, do you want a sunroof and the upsells? And then you go through the process of then financing the actual selling of four minutes. For an EV, it can be two hours and 20 minutes because you're really trying to over educate. And then for various reasons, usually deals with MSRP and other incentives from coming down from OEMs and dealerships, then that salesperson gets paid about mm-hmm. half of the commission. So you're asking them to spend more time. You have no greater chance of probability. If anything, I'd say it's less than the EV because the technology is new and less time. So. What we wanted the buyer's guide to do is, is address that. And one thing when we kicked off the buyer's guide, before we launched it, we invited all the dealerships to come in. And part of it was the thinking of, you know, as a city, it's not about pushing the climate change agenda, which fuels a lot of our programs, but there, there's, there's other strategic drivers as well. It was about, you know, how this platform will help you sell more units and, and get caught up this investment in local dealerships. And we all supposed to have two lunch with Mayor Adler. So it was more of a formal invitation from the mayor to dealerships come in and let's let's have barbecue lunch together. And then we brought in one of our keynote speakers was a sales an EV salesperson up in North Texas, who is now goes by Buzz the evangelist. By the way, there's a lot of <laughs> puns in the EV space. So anything I say the word evangelist or I say plug in everywhere or E-Visionary City, we talked about the EDTA award. They always do the capitalized EV, the big E, big V. So anytime I say evangelists, it's big E, big V for for the viewers at home or listeners at home. And he he self-described, and I 100% believe him, has sold more EVs as an individual than anyone else in Texas. And so we brought him and he talked about... As a matter of interest, what OEM? He sold a lot of Bolts and Bolts, General Motors. And so, and so he worked at a dealership just north of, of Dallas. And so he talked their language. He talked, yeah, it's about units here and here's how they, and here's how you flip the customer and whatnot. We also interviewed him a lot, as well as we talked to sales managers, internet managers. We got a lot of information of what really is the barrier here. And um, so what we realized what the platform does, it kind of gives customers an expedited buying process online, not too dissimilar to the Tesla buying process. The Tesla buying process is online and how you configure and whatnot. And then you might go, they can't call them dealerships in the state of Texas because we have rules that they can't be a dealership. They're a showroom. Then go to the showroom and test drive, but the showroom person can't talk about price and whatnot. All that's configured online. So we wanted a similar type experience. So when the person showed up, we limited that two and a half hour to, it just might be a 10 minute, pickup window and you've made that sell and they like that they like that we are offloading a lot of the education we also put in kiosk which is basically seven foot tall iphones in dealerships so not only could people kind of have this cool experience of the cars and range and charging but the dealerships while they're waiting on rotation their board they would interact with it and we also launched training to the dealerships and to, so we now have over 20 dealerships on the platform today because it's also important for us to not just have a buyer's guide that said generally cars available, but color, VIN, new and used. And so by having used is we also breaking the myth that this is just toys for the rich. I was just on the buyer's guide a few days ago, several cars for seven thousand, seventy 8,000 great used commuter cars, Nissan Leafs, Bolts, et cetera. And so... We just really tried to fundamentally change the customer experience, remove the, I'm going to go walk up, pass a row of of internal combustion engine trucks, go through, get a random person that, hey, how can I help you today? And you're putting all your eggs into that, into that transaction. We want someone to know what they want ahead of time, be informed. Also, if they say the EV, the dealerships who are participating in this platform identified a subject matter expert generally it's the internet sales manager is a more savvy, but it just might be one person who's really passionate. And if they say the word EV is, oh, you want to talk to Bob. So then they have a much better experience than getting the the the, the random salesperson. And you also have to look at sales people is there's a lot of longevity in car salespeople. There's a lot of turnover. And you're also asking them to, to kind of learn all about EV and stuff. Why do that? That's just a small percentage. So, to kind of, I don't know, put a period at the end of this rather long-winded statement. It was all about, you know, change the person or change the person. We need to give that person the tools so they could be successful. The salespeople, we wanted the dealership to be sales successful in, in units. And then we also wanted the community to be successful, have a one-stop shop. So if you go to ev.austinenergy.com today, that's the buyer's guide. And you click on show me all the vehicles. You just won't, you'll see every OEM under the sun with the exception of Tesla. They have their own marketing strategy, but the GMs, the Ford, the Polestars, et cetera, new and used cars are all online. And there's a lot of calculators, information on incentives and the rebates. There's now new rebates for used vehicles. We're very excited about that. And that's come through the, the new, the administration's act. The inflation reduction correct yeah. and that includes for the first time rebates rebates unused and, and I will end with a metric because we do try to be data driven as far as understanding the outcomes. We had no idea how many people would, would come to the buyer 's guide. We really had no clue so we've been tracking ten thousand unique visitors a month, and during a promotional campaign, we can get a thousand unique visitors in a day. so when you put that ten thousand a month plus into perspective. We register about a thousand EVs a month. So we're sending a 10 to one funnel through the buyer's guide into dealers as a call of action.
1: People that are close to point of purchase.
0: Yeah. You're not going to a buyer's guide that's showing you use it because you're just, you're bored. You're now thinking about buying a new car. And then we also talked a little bit about language. Something else we learned through our different promotional campaigns. EV is an industry term. Our customers don't say EV. So that's another strategy is do we want our programs to reflect the language of our customer or traditional utility approach is let's teach them our language and our form and here's you participate in a program. We're really trying to push and understand what their language is. For example,
1: what do what they say?
0: Well, if you look at the five top five search terms before you hit the buyer's guide on a, a, a Google placement ad, EVs is not even the top five. It's car, car, cars. You know, it, it doesn't. So, so once again, is so then we have to think about our programs and promoting electric cars to consumers, and it might be transportation electrification for fleets. So, once again, it's understanding who your audience is and making sure your talking points. And even go further, your language is is rather than trying to teach them your language, understanding their language and just just start from that as a. Because it's funny premise. if we go back
1: to the Super Bowl from last year and seeing all the ads that were in there for electric vehicles, they don't say electric cars; they do it's EVs. So that even the OEMs and their agencies need to become more cognizant of the actual self-language that people are using.
0: Yeah, I mean, the OEMs also you know, notoriously launched the Chevy Nova in South America, which is Spanish for doesn't go. So I, I wouldn't say they're necessarily this. I mean, some brands are better than others. I used to, when I speak, I would give out awards for the worst marketing of the year. And some of my favorite ones was a BMW campaign and it's basically a print ad where you're getting a ticket from a, from a cop, from a police officer. And the tagline is, well, at least you're saving money on gas. So you're associating your brand with some of the worst experiences you're getting a, a ticket. Terrible. That won an award. Another award winner was, was Chevy. And, and, and I say Volt and Bolt interactively. I think that's terrible how closely they, they, they named the two. And I've given that feedback to general motors as as well uh so i always have to take a moment to remember the volts the first generation then the bolt but they had a campaign around uh, someone in their car going to a gas station but the but they're in a plug-in so they didn't need gas they just really had to use the bathroom so they're cramping up like in distress needing the bathroom and it's like really are you associating your brand with the customer experience of having to go to a, a gas station's bathroom uh, so they won an award and even Nissan won one won of my, and when I say award, this is the Carl Popham award of bad marketing, not very prestigious at all. Nissan's first launching was about saving the planet. So they had a planet and it changed into a pregnant woman's belly and whatnot. And what we found is people don't buy cars to change the, the planet is very first, people who sell cars successfully don't sell cars, they sell a lifestyle. Once you understand that fundamentally premise, the number one where it's kind of fun or cool or a car looks at you know it it's a representation of who i am and that's really what you're selling and so you had all these terrible number two is then can i afford it and a distant three in evs in our focus groups well it's also good for the climate so so that's generally what you don't want to lead with you've already owned those people over it's now about how this brand represents you. Because if everyone just looked at cost, I don't know, we'd all be driving Kias. There would, I mean, I could go in the parking lot here. I'm sure there's plenty of Mercedes and BMW. There's Teslas. There's all kinds of brands that aren't, quote unquote, the cheapest or most practical. And so I think just kind of understanding the consumer behavior and almost the ridiculous behavior we have with buying cars for a lot of homes, the second most expensive thing we buy outside a house. And at the same time, of the time, give or take, it's not doing anything. It's parked. It's only used 5% of the time. And one study I looked at the 5% of the time it's used, the wheels are 1% of that 5% is quote unquote, looking for parking. So once again, is, is car ownership in the U S you really have to wrap your head around it. And what's the story you're trying to tell? I'd say first and foremost, because Americans and globally, not just Americans, but I'll just focus on Americans and Texans. And that's my market just have a very interesting relationship with car ownership. And to understand that is how I think you're gonna be successful in changing hearts and minds to EVs. However, that
1: might change somewhat with electric vehicles and their use of vehicles as power units. And maybe just come and reflect on that. But before you do there was something you presented at Electrify Expo. Um you called it your your future of electricity bow tie and I found it fascinating just because of some of the the data you presented around it which really reinforced some of my experiences of the driving experience in austin and why it's so busy at times and the roads are intensely competitive to find your way from north to south perhaps you can walk us through those the drivers of your bow tie and where you're seeing the innovations occur certainly and i will put this image in the show notes and if i'm I am taking some video, and I maybe what I'll do is I'll in the video I'll integrate a still and put this out on social media because I think it's really interesting for people to understand this sort of the two sides of electrification.
0: So perhaps you
1: could just walk us through
0: it. I've only publicly showed the bow tie twice. One was Electrify Expo, and a month or so prior to an event called the Future of Electricity, which I was presenting on, and it was really focused on the Texas and Texas grid. And, uh, an audience here for an audience called the Austin Forum on Society and Technology, a a, a great, a a great event and great group. I'll put
1: that in the link because that's on, that's available on, uh, I don't think I saw it on YouTube. I found it and Googling it and I watched that as well.
0: Yeah, that's also we get where how audio and video, that was our first time to do the event at our new HQ and we're not set up with audio and video. So not really recommending that. No, but it's, uh, it's
1: actually very – it's good because it, you went – it's the same detail you went into elect, at Electrify Expo, but for anyone who wants to see the whole presentation, you know, it, it's – Certainly.
0: That. Sir, th- that, thank you. That That's very kind of you to to, to – to promote that. But so what it, what I'm trying to, trying to show or wrap my head around and kind of the theme I'd say today is about the ability to tell stories and the bow tie is a way to kind of tell a story or to present something that can be very complex in a much easier way. And a lot of times pictures can tell a thousand words. So it's just kind of, you're kind of looking at a visual that that helps. So one of the premises is what's the future of electricity in Texas and Texas grid look like? And I think before you can kind of look at the future and innovation, you have to look, well, what's driving growth? You know, what is growth? And Texans get about a half a million, 500,000 new residents a a year. So we have population growth. And I think one of the metrics I might have talked about Electrify Expo, that number in Austin is around 160 a day is what we get in Austin. 160 160 new residents a day. New residents a day is our latest stat. And to put that in perspective, so what does that equate to? We almost have the same amount as people as cars in our two-county area. So that's, you know, 150 or so, 140 cars a day being added With to With no
1: increase in infrastructure and roads.
0: Incremental, yeah. It, it definitely can't keep up. So we're not going to pave our way out of this sort of population growth if mobility is important to you. There is much larger, and one of the things Austin created, which I was a co-writer on, is the Austin Smart Mobility Roadmap that talked about shared electric autonomous and other technologies to try to improve because we're not going to pave our way out of it. We're going to try, but I don't think we'll be successful based on that kind of growth. Also, you have roughly, what, 2.2 people per home, so you can cut that number and have 80 new homes a day need to be built. That's also a reason why we're in a housing crisis, both from affordability and availability. So we have a lot of folks who... Can't afford the rents anymore, and they're moving out of a closer to Austin and closer to the work, maybe in more suburbs of Austin. So for every dollar they save on rent, they may be paying sixty cents, seventy cents on now transportation because they're being far away. So it's just this. But just to contextualize
1: that, Austin, unlike cities like New York, aren't really—I mean, this downtown, which is more high-rise, but the majority of Austin is fairly low-rise. So it's expanding outwards rather than upwards. As a city, so although there's a there's a certain density, it's not concentrated. And sometimes crossing the ridges or over Lady Bird Lake, you 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 question the sort of the the intensity and the density of the traffic. But presumably that housing, it's 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 going further out. The city limits are are increasing as people find new places to live, and therefore you probably have some time around your strategy of rolling out this of shared mobility and automation. How do you describe it?
0: Well, one strategy for console-directed staff to look at next-generation mobility, and staff, myself included, I was the electrification lead, came up with the smart mobility, I have to think about it, roadmap, which calls on three tenets of shared electric and autonomous. Those synergies, we talked about synergies earlier, those three technologies in parallel work a lot better together as a better customer experience where the shared is what really helps with congestion. There was a study done in I-35 and that's one of our biggest arteries right, right through Austin and the average number of drivers in a vehicle is 1.1. So keeping most cars require the one driver. So it's the 0.1. So one is the shared to try to move that number, the commuter from 1.1 to something a little, little higher. The electric helps address climate change, clean air, emissions, as well as affordability. Electric's just much more affordable to, to operate. And then the autonomous also helps with cost, affordability in transit, as well as potentially safety and other factors. So those were kind of the, the value streams, if you will, those three technologies all coalescing together as a new way to, to move Austin. But there is, and also our light rail. I mean, that's electrification. Light rail is electrification here in Austin. We have a couple popular routes. One from downtown all the way to, to Leander. So you really look at when you talk about growth, it's the smaller townships around us that are booming as well. Leander, Georgetown, Utah. Yeah. I was I was raised in Lago Vista, which is a little past. Leander, you know, graduating, you know, we talked about my beginnings. My graduating class was 22. So that also had an impact of just how I, I guess, see the world from Lago Vista, Texas. So yeah, we are spreading out unlike New York City, which has those geographic hard lines, you know, your peninsula coming out in the ocean, basically, you know, we, we really don't have that. We can just grow and grow and grow in these smaller townships, but there is, um, there's pros and cons, let's say, to that strategy. And so you're seeing a lot of interest in more density in the Austin core to reduce the amount of VMT or vehicle miles traveled needed for a commute. But we've also seen a major shift from the pandemic and a lot more working from home. Talking to the experts and my colleagues at the transportation department, other city department, they are saying, though, the number of trips is back up to the pre-pandemic levels. But the shift is different. It's not this huge morning peak and a huge afternoon peak. It's, it's a little more spread out, but it's busy all the time. Now <laughs> That's what I was versus... about to
1: say. <laughs> Tell me when I'm heading down, I'm in South Austin, heading down to go to the gym around maybe three, four in the afternoon. The roads are still sort of rammed with cars.
0: Yeah. It's a lot harder to, to predict. I mean, I, I've lived in Austin for over 30 years, Austin area for over 40. And I've definitely seen that change. It used to be real easy. I mean, that one car did work when we were kind of a sleepy college town that also housed the, the legislature once every two years and you could go anywhere and it was easy and there wasn't traffic. So, so, so I've, I've personally witnessed that impact of that 150, 160 people net per day as the slow boiling of the frog to use another analogy when you're looking at climate action. It's just been just slow, 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 and now you can reflect and look back and like, wow, we are, we are definitely, we're definitely in a crisis.
1: So that's well. the first box in your bow tie, that's driving. Oh the, yeah, the we're the talking demand.
0: about the bow tie. Yeah. Uh, so one is when you're looking at the future of anything, and this was a lot of the work done both as a technology consultant and other areas. You first have to do a baseline, and so what is driving the growth? The three things driving the growth in Texas and Austin is population. The second one is, is EVs. So we're in Texas. We have about 130,000, 140,000 EVs registered. Over the next year, we might get up to another 50,000. So 50. Mm-hmm.
1: What's that as a percentage as a metric?
0: Right now in Austin, we're at
1: 10%. So you're Ten- way ahead of the rest of the country.
0: Austin definitely is. Mm. That 1,000 registered EVs a month overall is out of a population of 10,000 vehicles registered a month. So we, we've hit the 10% mark here in Austin. Austin also represents about 20% of the Texas market, even though we're about 3.5% of the population. So once again, the Austin is a hub of EV activity for a lot of reasons. And it's accelerating even more, you know, being the Tesla headquarters and Gigafactory and all this stuff. But we were already seeing those numbers before those before those announcements. Uh And then third, which I think surprised a lot of people at the Future of Electricity event. What electrify expo. This was. Yeah. The number one driver isn't that amazing population growth or even all these new EVs. It's cryptocurrency mining. So the reporting on cryptocurrency mining is. In 2022, 1.5 gigawatts. And by 2023, that'll go 7.5. So what is 7.5 gigawatts? That's basically you're adding the city of Houston within 12 months to basically randomly roll numbers to guess a number so your spreadsheet can get one more Bitcoin, specifically it's Bitcoin, added to your ledger. I mean, that's fundamentally what you're doing. You're just having these high-intensity data centers that all they do is randomly guess numbers to try to make a lucky guess. You get the number and then you receive a Bitcoin. So why Austin? Well, I'd say why it's really why Texas. It's not, it's not in Austin. It's in Texas, but just to put another sense of where that growth is and why, so it's bigger than EVs and population combined is reporting from at that time, the acting ERCOT chief whose ERCOT is our utility grid or, our grid operator in the state of Texas. And for people living
1: outside of Texas and even in the U.S., Texas has its own grid that's independent from the U.S.
0: Correct. There's three grids in the U.S. There's the Eastern grid, there's a the Western grid, and then there's a Texas grid. We, we, we like our independence. And then the Texas grid is called ERCOT. So the interim ERCOT chief at that time said they've also had interest in the equivalent of 2.5 New York cities to come online in Texas as soon as possible. Uh, So that means 17 gigawatts. So once you start expressing energy demand from one type of company, from one specific business case, and your unit of measurement is New York cities, that is astronomical amount of demand, amount of load, amount of energy wanting to be consumed by bitcoin miners because they're all kicked out of china so they have all this hardware china said we don't want to spend the energy and there's no there's no societal value to these cryptocurrencies and also we having our own issues providing electricity for buildings and people and transit so why suck up all this energy so they got booted so then they globally looked distributed wow. where they could go but so they went, concentrate in texas well they went to canada well they look at two things affordability and policy. So Canada had affordability, a lot of hydropower, but you also had some Canadian utilities say, yeah, you can come here, but rather than increase prices for everyone, if you come in and set up cryptocurrency, we're going to charge you twice the going rate. So you're now subsidizing our residents rather than just then driving price up. So that had the low power, but they have the policy Texas. We have the perfect storm of very open policy and very low energy costs. For example, there's an operation in North Texas. They got paid more by ERCOT, ultimately the ratepayer, to shut down their operation during during a little stress on the grid than they do making Bitcoin. They got nine million dollars in one month just on from ERCOT and from demand response programs to hey, can you go ahead and shut down all your power demand? And that same month they made three million on Bitcoin. So that word spread like wildfire. They will pay you to not run in texas and and go ahead and run all you want and if and if the the strike price so so how it works is the thought is an ERCOT is what's unique about the ERCOT market is one is we're just an energy market what does that mean and energy markets is we buy and sell real time 15 minute intervals the cost of energy we're eastern and western grid so you look at california and florida they have capacity markets Capacity markets, we're going to pay you just to have some backup reserves. So, you know, when you look at strains on the grid is our reserves are a fraction of if you live in Florida and California because their grid and their authorizes their ability to purchase reserves or capacity market. So Florida, you know, any given month might have 22, 23, 24 percent in excess reserves. So if things start going bad, they have a big cushion. Latest numbers from ERCOT around 7 percent. We're razor thin. But we're also half the price because we're not paying to have that reserve. So risk reward and really, do you want the risk reward in your grid? That, that's, I guess that's a different discussion, but that's kind of where we are today. I'm
1: trying to explain what's the value. If, if the Chinese clearly see no societal value, where's the value to Texas or to ERCOT in having crypto miners here? If when the grid's under pressure, you're having to pay them to go offline. And when they are online, they're just sucking up resource. So where's the payback?
0: So Carl Popham, not any kind of promotion of the utilities approach, is one is I don't see the side of value in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. I also see the number two cryptocurrency on the market. They overnight drastically reduced their energy consumption by changing how they produce their currency. Bitcoin hasn't. You also look at the found, I mean, Bitcoin has always been this dark web thing. It was a way for drug cartels to hide money. It was a lot of kind of, a lot of illegal activities, everything around human trafficking is related to being purchased in these kind of dark web cryptocurrencies. And so what really started coming to, I would say, mainstream is it was also the number one mechanism to pay off ransomware. So state actors, whether it's North Korea or other very, and the only way they'd set money. So you had companies starting to buy into it before it gets more expensive. Let's hedge our risk bet. So if we have to pay a ransomware, we're paying in, you know, 2018 prices and not 2020 of this Bitcoin. So you just look at what is, well, you know, maybe I agree with China. I have not yet to discover. I know smart people into crypto, but I I still don't understand the side of value of why you don't want to put so much resources. I mean, I've heard it said there's never been a business case or industry that's asked for so much and given so little back to society. I mean,
1: I can I can think we can separate out the arguments for crypto or the even for Bitcoin in terms of a store of value. That's I think a lot of people will accept, even in this crypto down market, that maybe over time with a limited supply of whether it's 21 million billion coins, whatever it is, it might have that store of value over time, and therefore I can understand why company might hedge. But I'm looking at it in terms of these drivers of demand in a state like Texas. When I wasn't here during the power outage and the storm, if the grid is at risk of falling over and therefore the societal impact, the negative, the externalities and negative impact on, on the economy, the knock-on effect nationally, if not globally, are absolutely huge. And why would a state legislator encourage or not discourage crypto miners from coming?
0: It encourages. So Senator Ted Cruz has said cryptocurrency is we want Texas to be the cryptocurrency capital of the world. You've had our governor be very pro. So we have senior policy, but it's not about being an impediment. It is about wanting to be the cryptocurrency capital of Texas. And that's, that's so that. And so in some ways I don't like saying political beliefs because now I'm telling you how to think in Texas. If I say Senator Ted Cruz likes crypto in Texas based on your view of Republican center from Texas, you might now have, well, I'm supposed to think this way. I'm supposed to think this, this other way. Cause it's being, you know, hard, hard promoted by one of our high profile leaders, Senator Ted Cruz. But I would say, and, and, and let's, I, I will, I'll definitely tell their theory on it, but I also think it's important to really on the value side where Warren Buffett says he went to buy all the crypto in the world for twenty five dollars, and the reason why I said that is because there's no value to it, because then I'd have to sell it to you. And then Bill Gates has referred to cryptocurrency as and NFTs, so he's already right on NFTs. Maybe he'll be right in crypto as well. Is is the uh, the bigger fool economy? As long as there's a bigger fool than you willing to buy it, that's how that economy works. So you have to look at kind of traditional investors and technologists and their view on it. They, they don't, they don't see it as well. So I kind of side towards that, but the argument is, so here's why Ted Cruz and others are saying it's fixing the grid. Cryptocurrency runs 24, 7, 365, the same. There's no curve to it. Everything else has a curve where air conditioning you know, runs when it's warm, cools during the day. In some ways, that's kind of why I like it is, is it's very consistent. It doesn't have the same seasonal fluctuations as air conditioning load, which is big in Texas. It is a nice consistent load. But the argument on crypto is two things is one is by having this new demand for electricity that will encourage more generators to produce electricity. So at some point it will pay off. It's not immediate, but at some point, cause, but at that some point is higher prices. And higher prices overall will then encourage investor owned generation utilities to then, well, we're going to put in another natural gas plant or maybe some more renewables. Cause now we're seeing prices up thanks to crypto. So, so it's almost like feeding. It's almost like a, a snake eating its tail in a way in that you're not overall providing a good. You're setting up this artificial entity that is just, you know, I even don't like saying the word mining. It's not my mi- mining gives a sense of you're actually doing something it's a random number generator you're rolling dice at a casino and the more chances you can roll those dice in a a matter of every second the better chance you're going to get luck that's all you're doing is these huge operations that are the equivalent of cities now that all they do is randomly row numbers and to your point you looked at btc bitcoin as being a finite rate, yeah, at some point it goes off. So the problem exactly with that right. is
1: what happens then
0: every two years, it takes twice a month of power to generate that one Bitcoin. So we're talking about 10.5 New York cities today for the cryptocurrency miners to make money is it's doubling every two years. So you're going to need to either at one point, you're going to just have a collapse. And one thing about the market- unless we market, get
1: fission, pardon me, unless we get nuclear fission.
0: You're right. There is a lot of interesting technologies that completely change, but, but, but I would say, on the reverse side, is we've spent so much money investment in energy efficiency, LED lighting, reducing power, being more efficient, and now over tens of year, years and years and years, and we're going to give all that over to a new business case called cryptocurrency. There's even a cryptocurrency outside the state of Texas. The community was closing down a, a low efficiency plant. They're just like, no, we'll just we'll just put a data farm right next to it. We'll keep we'll keep that coal plant running. Or gas plant running, even though it's too, it's not efficient enough to provide electricity to you is we'll run it 24 seven and we can make it work. But, but that is, that is the thought. The thought is it provides some power. And at some point, cause the price is going up and other things that might encourage generation in our market driven electric economy, the ERCOT market to ultimately make more generation. Okay.
1: Right. Well, those are the gross drivers. The desired. Can you go walk us through the desired outcomes? Then,
0: sure. So at the end of the day, our desired outcomes of all this new load growth is reliability and resiliency. And I I did personally experience that storm. It was terrible. I'm also an incident command at the electric utility, so I understand it from a utility perspective. All that's incorporated in, re- in resiliency of responding to a storm like that. Climate action and clean air is outcome number two just global you want to address it very important in Austin. And then the third desired outcome is energy security and affordability. And those are related. Really when you talk about energy security, when you look at everything helping from but that is a one it's a real life crisis to people around the world but it's also a vision into what can quickly happen you know here in the US if we're not careful and then maybe to the point of looking at those growth drivers. but so with the growth drivers of being population crypto and transportation, the desired outcomes being reliability, climate action and energy security affordability i'm seeing a trend in innovation and that's the center of the bow tie the three major things i'm seeing being addressed through innovation that understand the growth and helps push the desired outcomes is one is there's a lot of technologies in decarbonization more energy with less carbon and we're whether it's pv solar wind or other interesting generation I'm also seeing a complete shift to decentralization. That was probably really springboarded with the invent of PV solar on a residential rooftop being economically viable.
1: What do you mean by, sorry, decentralization?
0: So, decentralization is, so historically, the electric grid since its invention over 100 years ago is a, centrally, a central generation unit, coal, natural gas, or modern times, large capacity, let's say wind. And then it goes through a transmission line, then goes through a distribution line and that electron is delivered to the home. Decentralization is you skip all those transmission distribution. You just might have a solar on your rooftop. You might have a battery in your garage. So you're decentralized from the central generation stack of the utility. And it's now it's more on the edge. So you're not going to have to go through all those all those wires above our heads you're just generating on site so that's the second innovation yeah and the third is more automation real-time controls other uses of ai and other technologies to be smarter and when i say smart so you know the word smart smartphone smart cities smart grid i would just condense that down to one simple thing let's just talk about quote unquote smart grid it's where you're adding the you're adding a chip and the ability to communicate and control device that historically you could not. So you're moving from analog to digital. And so that is really the premise of what shifts something from quote, unquote, dumb to to smart. And so with those smart controls, we're seeing a lot of innovation in autonomous and AI machine learning to help make sure those myriad of resources are running as efficiently as possible.
1: When you talk about that second one about the decentralized is that where we're going to start to see the impact of evs play a part in creating more sustainable homes and communities because they are energy independent that they can turn on the battery and have energy from the vehicle powering their home in
0: cases of a storm or power outage 100 percent um so let's put it into perspective a Ford F-150 Lightning weighs in at about 130 kilowatt hours of energy storage. That can easily power a home. It's give and take to how many things for several days. Two and a half days, three days is according to the Ford website. But it all, your mileage may, may differ. Depends
1: how big your home is.
0: Big your home and then what are you connecting to it? If you just want lights in your refrigerator, that could last weeks and weeks and weeks. Once you start getting heating and cooling involved, then that starts shortening it down a bit. But it, it's, it's, it's very significant. To put it, to put that 125, 130 KW, KWH in perspective, a Tesla power wall, which is an energy storage stationary device you put in your garage, only weighs in at around 10 kilowatt hours. So that's like having 12 or 13 power walls. By the way, it's cheaper to buy a Ford F-150 Lightning than the equivalent Tesla power walls. Plus you have a truck. So not a bad way if you're so an the So even energy if it's star- just
1: sitting in your garage, powered off all the yeah, time, even it's, if it's your mobile it. Powerwall.
0: That's correct. What's also fascinating is Ford is going all in. So they're already having high profile commercials of people pulling up and you see the storm in the background and mom saves the day. She turns on a button in her home, home lights like a Christmas tree. And if you go to the Ford F-115 website for the first time ever, I've seen a car that number one and number two- reasons why I would buy the Ford is power your home when you need it during a storm and power your work site. So they're going all in and this being a, an energy platform.
1: Yeah. But we're also seeing that in terms of a um, few visit, let's say Rivian or Silverado's website. They're all they're all recognizing. And I think also Electrify Expo, the last speaker of the day was GM Energy representative. I can't remember his name now. But he made a compelling case of talking about the sort of the, the role of energy for the OEMs and becoming energy providers themselves.
0: I think there is a lot of opportunity. Right now, a lot of the opportunity is focused on being basically a power generator for your home or work site. And, but yeah, because you, you cannot underestimate the scale and size of these vehicles that are coming online. It also, serendipity scales well with more solar. It scales well with more renewable energy. So renewable energy is intermittent energy versus dispatchable or baseload energy. So coal and natural gas and nuclear, like nuclear and coal plant is what we call base. It just runs all this stuff. Natural gas can go either way, but it's basically a plane engine turned on its side that's spinning is what a natural gas plant is. And a lot of times those can be for those are peak power plants. So when you need them, they turn on within 15 minutes, they're up and running. And then you shut them down where solar and wind is relying on wind and the sun being out. So battery storage has always been a little bit of that key part of the missing ecosystem to get more and more intermittent resources, specifically solar and wind safely and affordably on the grid. So all that energy storage that comes with all these EVs is definitely a a key part of that equation. I interviewed last
1: year Dina Levinsky, who was a ghostwriter of the creator of the iPod, Tony Fidel, who worked under Steve Jobs at Apple, a book called Build, which is a guide to anyone building anything and designing. And it's a wonderful book. It's like a how-to builder's guide from Tony. And I heard him interviewed a couple of days ago on Kara Swisher's podcast and him talking about his Future focus is very much, he said, it's, you've got to, if you're doing anything today, if you're building anything today, you've got to be focused on climate. You've got to be focused on battery technologies, as he said, because that's how we're going to really address the long-term energy needs. And at the moment, yeah, if anyone, I mean, I've got a, <laughs> a nephew I'll remain nameless is very anti EVs because he goes, Oh yeah, these batteries are the lithium, nickel. They do as much damage to the environment as. All this of the, 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 the gas guzzling cars and going, well, you, whatever your perception, whatever misinformation you've been given, we're at a pointed time when that's the, the, the reality of battery technology. It's cobalt, it's nickel, it's lithium, and they come from mines. And yes, but if we look at the data, it's still better and less environmentally impactful from a negative standpoint than, than, than fossil fuels. But as Tony, Pointed out, and as I've been reading recently, there's advances happening in battery technologies around sodium. Yeah, sodium battery technology, which will mean it has no negative footprint at all, and it will allow us to create much greater scale battery technologies and plants that will have huge positive benefits for society. So, when we're looking at these battery technologies, where does Austin Energy sit when you've got organisations like Tesla that are investing? millions if not billions and in, in those technologies other startups doing that what's the role of the utilities when it comes to battery
0: well i mean i think one thing is kind of your point is it's really about energy storage battery is a component and you are seeing some very interesting uh there is a new plant i want to say it's in the netherlands might be sweden and it's based on sand it's a sand storage for for heating and just phenomenal So it's about the business case. The reason why lithium ion is the winner for EVs right now is because of the density and the weight. But for a lot of energy storage systems from a utility perspective is we're less concerned about density and weight or footprint when we're putting storage next to a substation or some other area where it can be of interest to the grid or next to a large solar or wind power plant to levelize or... Store that intermittent generation from those type of sources. So one is I would look at energy storage and the different technologies there within EVs is you're seeing some battery manufacturers coming out with those same three chemistries, but different ratios to accommodate the supply chain or where it's mined or the expense of the mine. So the, instead of being an even split, it might be heavier in one ingredient versus the other and get similar results. I think within a matter of three to five years, we will see a leapfrog in technology in the lithium ion today, whether it's next generation or solid state batteries. So here in Austin, we have Professor Gooden- Goodenough, who got the Nobel Prize for lithium ion battery invention, one of the co-inventors of that. He's, I think, 94 right now, 95, still crushing wow. it. I did get the opportunity to meet him a few years ago. Very intriguing guy, a lot of fun. And he's made announcement. His team is about ready to just do a major advancement. And you look at three things. You look at density. You look at weight and cost. And he seems to think he can, you know, double times two or times four in a positive way. All three of those aspects in the next generation. And that changes the economics. That just changes it overnight. Anyone with a barrier to adoption, suddenly
1: that. Cost yeah. of gas.
0: So I would tell your nephews, one is, you know, when you're starting to get economies of scale is we have a long way to go to get generation after generation improvement of car batteries and energy storage in general versus internal combustion engines been around 120. It, it's kind of tweaked out what it's going to tweak out from <laughs> a physics perspective. <laughs> so one is you're kind of launching a new paradigm, but I'll also say the other resistance when I, when I hear your nephew is perfection is the enemy of progress without a doubt. So it's not like our EV is good. It's what are you comparing it to? The internal combustion engine. Is it better or worse than it today? And then in two, three, five years, is it better or worse than where it is? So what your trajectory is? And the EV wins today. It wins in the future. It wins on so many. It it wins on just customer experience. Customer satisfaction EVs are very good. It it has a natural synergy with autonomous driving. So there's so many future technologies that are coming online that align well with EVs. Also, you don't have a tailpipe. So that's NOx emission. That's asthma. That's, you know, all these kids, especially in lower income communities, you have a lot more vehicles with tailpipes driving around. That's directly associated with children's health and asthma and other things with all that NOx particulates. EVs don't have a tailpipe. They're also quieter. All those noise emissions go away. So there's just so many advantages when you peel back the onion towards a simple talking point. But you're right. The science is already in. Today, it's already better when you look at the entire supply chain. But it's only getting better and better every year. And it's going to get astronomically better year over year than the, the waning legacy of the internal combustion engine.
1: Could you just give us a simple overview of your transformation strategy here in Austin beyond just EVs? Could you give us just a summary of your five-pillar strategy?
0: Well, Certainly. So the reason why we came up with the five pillar strategy is a way to encompass, it's, it's portfolio management, just to organize and to making sure we're addressing what we think are the kind of the biggest barriers fundamentally to get the outcomes we want. So one is charging infrastructure. And just
1: as a yeah. reminder, these are the outcomes we talked about in the bow tie.
0: Correct. The resiliency, the affordability, the climate action, clean air, equity, affordability. So one is what most utilities generally focus on and wrap their head around is charging infrastructure. Are we going to provide charging stations to our customers? And Austin Energy, we manage about 1600 charging stations today at over 300 locations. Put that in perspective. We have more locations of charging hubs than there are gas stations. And these in Austin would America.
1: be called level two or level three chargers.
0: Correct. Most of those 1600 are level two. We personally manage 30 DC fast or level three but we also have a lot of great charging networks from Tesla has a lot of charging stations there. Rivian is starting to put charging stations as well as third party providers so we have a pretty robust ecosystem but 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 we can do better i think overall the industry needs to do better on reliability of charging infrastructure that's a whole known issue due to supply chain and other issues but i i continue to see the the improvements being made so that's one thing utilities can kind of tackle and get their get their head around the other one is if you are a city or utility and you're launching a program, you really need to have a, f- a lens or focus on your equity. And we kind of group that in equity and affordability. For example, on our level two charging stations, our customers can charge all they want for $4.17 a month. Wow. So we're seeing people like from Georgetown who want from having to fill up their, their, their car, you know, 50 $60 a week. Getting a work site EV charging station and buying an EV and going from $120, $150 of gas a month to $4.17 if their workplace, for example, joined that network. So and that's a way to address this. contextualize
1: that place like Georgetown is about 25 miles from the center of Austin. So you're, what you're doing is you're allowing someone to commute
0: for $4 a month, which is incredible. And penny's a trip. It's incredible. Penny's a trip. But there's also other things we're working on under the equity thing. We work with a lot of stakeholders, HACA, which is affordable housing, as well as specific developments, mills on wheels, others to understand their needs and to look at potential job training programs, gig economy drivers by having EVs, the shared cars at housing units. We even have a pilot on e bike, electric bike infrastructure and e bikes with the lease. A rental of an apartment, which is 80% affordable housing units. And what I found with the equity plays is you really have to launch from a position of understanding and being very specific to what they need. And one of the biggest unintended consequences I see from the federal IRA Act and whatever, which talks about equity plays, is people looking at, well, nationally, we know from census data where where low-income people live, so let's just put infrastructure there. I think randomly putting infrastructure where, quote, unquote, poor folks live is the most unintended consequence of good intentions gone wrong. At best, it will get ignored. At worst, it will look as a form of gentrification. It's not for us. It's for others. In Texas, it will get shot at, especially in rural communities or otherwise vandalized. So I think you have to. So some of my input into the equity play of some of these federal programs to our congressmen and others has been, I think before you roll it out in a community, you need a letter of support from the community you're saying you're trying to serve. Say, we understand it. It's on our property. We want it here to just get that buy-in rather than a campaign that just pops up stuff based on census tract. Third is fleets and new mobility. So our most active fleet project is our local transit authority, Cap Metro mm-hmm. has so buses. made a, yeah, buses have made a commitment to be hundred percent electric. They will never buy a fossil fuel bus again is wow. their statement. That's amazing. So they are planning by the end of this year to have 73 electric buses. There's 12 in service right now. They're going to have two rapid transit lines fully serviced by electric. We helped them design and build out a 200 electric bus depot in North Austin. They're already looking at a second site location and in route charging for some of the rapid transit lines. So so very excited. And that
1: includes school buses.
0: School bus. So ASD recently, Austin Independent School District, recently made a commitment to electrify their school buses. They have just ordered their first few to pilot, but they have made a commitment because with school buses, one is that. When you talk to consumers, it's about MSRP to buy an EV. When you talk to fleets it's about TCO, total cost of ownership, the total cost of ownership is already there for fleets. So not only is it going to save the school district's money, you're now removing that diesel smell and particulate tailpipe from those school children and you're replacing it with a tailpipe free and quiet electric bus. And so we're very excited about the application there. We're also electrifying the city's own fleet and what we're finding from electrifying our our own city of Austin fleet we are about 285 EVs and growing in that project but what we found our original goal was to save the city million in 10 years. When we first launched the project, we're going to be about a year and a half ahead of schedule in that savings. And by the time we hit the 10 year landmark, we'll actually double that to 7 million in savings. So city fleet services is already showing it. It doesn't even come close. Every EV light duty EV they bring in over a 10 year total cost of ownership is saving the city $10,000. That's where that 3.5 million over 331 EVs comes from. And they're seeing it almost equally divided. Half of that savings comes from lower fuel costs. The other half comes from less maintenance. And another good thing about less maintenance, it means it's in service longer. So they have less time of that car spent in their depot being repaired or whatnot, and more doing the service that it's that the taxpayers have paid for it to do, whether it's a police vehicle or some other kind of city vehicle of sort. So the fleet story is already coming in very strong.
1: That's the third pillar. Pardon me? That's the third pillar.
0: Yeah, fourth pillar, outreach and education. When a utility or city comes to me is where should I start? I I always say start there. Have a strategy, have a vision, talk to your stakeholders, find out who your your friends of the show are or your ecosystem. Also, there's a lot of decisions being made that about utility businesses. And my advice to other utilities is if you don't have a strategy or vision of kind of being a leader in this space. You can either be on the table or at the table, and so you're on the table if you're not part of the conversations. And now you're going to have to react to some big policy changes about EVs. So start with outreach, work with your community, get involved, and so you're at the table, and so you're part of those conversations and about I mean, what. When EVs you talk about
1: outreach, how would you a utility? Who would the be to
0: within the community? So. It's by business segment. So we have one outreach. is just general community. So that is everything about. So when you went to Electrify Expo, that was an industry slash community event. So when the numbers came in, we were about 15,000 people showed up to that event. And 7,000 people did some sort of electric. I'm sorry. 4,000 did EV ride and drive. And about 10,000 did an electric bike ride and drive. So that was both a community event. And that was and then the weekend. Industry event, yeah, the Electrify because Expo. Because the
1: previous year, I did, what I did notice and expect that this year compared to last, I went to both, is the difference in the weather. But the previous year was a lot warmer, so I suspect you've probably got more people out of that.
0: Correct. The inaugural year of Electrify Expo was about 20,000, so this year when it was cold, down 14, but we had about the same amount of ride and drives. Which we like because mm-hmm. that's what ultimately changes the yeah. behavior is getting people into is doing that. We them. actually increase the number of ride and drives on bikes and scooters and we're about the same. And the only thing is slowing down the ride and drives on the EVs that 4,000 mark. They were fully booked. Every manufacturer bought around eight test drive. And if you looked at the reservation system, fully booked. So if they would have brought more, we'd have had more ride and drives. So, but so big scale events, but sometimes small scale, sometimes we will send out just to. One housing community and just talk to 10 people and, and what they're doing and, and everything in between. We also have a team. We have a, a senior equity lead in EVs. She also manages electric bike ride and drives. We just recently announced effective a few days ago, doubling our e-bike incentives for Austin energy customers, as well as having a special incentive for our low income community for that. Caps out as if the electric bike is $2,000 or more, your incentive from the city, from Austin Energy can be $1,300. So that is a huge incentive for low income customers to have the tools on electric bike. But we also pair that with we, we, we go on a roadshow. We do safety training. We also demonstrate how to use Cap Metro's electric bike share program. They have a program for low income for $5 a month, have access to, to rides in their ecosystem. You also get a free helmet. And so there's just a lot of just attention to detail and nuanced thought about those type of outreach events. So it really falls down to is who are we talking to, what's the audience, and what do we bring to the table? And so sometimes it's electric bikes, sometimes Electrify Expo. It's more kind of because we had a lot of industry people there, more about big policy and big ideas. But then the engine over the weekend was the ride and drives for mostly our local community. And then the last pillar is grid integration. How can we maximize the opportunities and minimize the threats of large adoption of EVs on Texas Electric Grid?
1: Hmm. And that's obviously, yeah, I mean, that's not going to happen. I mean, the adoption is at 10%. I mean, presumably we would have to hit something like 40,
0: 50% before there's any risk to the grid. Well, it's it's going to be pinpointed. There could potentially be pinpoint risks. It, it, I don't think there's the risk to like the, if it's just being this whole new load, it doesn't even compare to crypto. If you're ad- addressing risk and the amount of energy, you first have to look at cryptocurrency as the big grill in the room. It's not these these EVs. But here in Austin, our goal, so we have something called the Austin Climate Equity Plan. Our goal in the Austin Climate Equity Plan by 2030, what, seven years? To be 40% of all vehicle miles traveled is going to be an electric platform. So that is taking a huge shift in not only personal ownership, public transit, logistics to get to 40% EVMT by 2030. That is a huge number to get in that amount of time.
1: And that also is interesting because that's not... Because by that, if you're hitting that level by 2030, replacement vehicles are going to be much higher than 10% electric because you still have lots of legacy purchases of ICE vehicles still on the road that are being bought today, being driven in 2030. So
0: Yeah, the average around 10 years. So when someone makes a purchasing decision now, and that's why it's so important to be at the point of sale, why we do the buyer's guide, they're making a 10-year-plus decision in that outcome. So the more people we can get involved today... That sets that trajectory for ten plus years on that vehicle. But typically, we look at a ten-year rolling. But mathematically, it's a little higher than that. But that's kind of what we look at. So yeah, to your to your point, mathematically, we might have to be seventy, eighty percent of all new newly registered vehicles need to be electric to hit a forty percent VMP.
1: What's the level of interest are you getting from other utilities around the country, or even just dealerships reaching out to you about your buyer's guide? Because presumably, it's something you could have an API and you could. It could be easily be extended and rolled out across the country.
0: I I have two package-ready projects that I typically pitch when I do a a utility engagement. And one of them is the buyer's guide. Specifically work with our partner Ride. They were able to roll out the framework of the buyer's guide in a matter of weeks. And then to get the APIs and working with the dealerships, you're talking a matter of months. And I think the cost of entry is very affordable for utilities. If you want to take it a step further, you can also introduce the the chargeway kiosk and some other bells and whistles. And uh the interest overall has just when I launched the when I co founded the EV and ET team ElectroView Emerge Technology in 2011, not a lot of interest. Now they're banging at your door. And so it's it's almost ridiculous the shift we saw and this amount of interest and focus. And typical utility um, organizations that won't even talk about EVs, they're now launching EV-specific programs, working group, executive sponsors. They're just really all in on it now. And so I, I've got to see that, that transition over these last 11 years from zero to no interest to just a flood of interest. And wouldn't presumably,
1: given the committed targets that organizations like GM, like Jim Farley and Mary Barra made – to hitting those targets of 100% EVs by 2035. Presumably they need organizations like yourself and the tools you're building to be adopted by dealerships en masse.
0: So I think I personally have talked to the strategic groups of almost every major OEM at various levels, as well as obviously a lot of the local dealerships. So, and so here's what I've learned. I mean, one, I have a standing meeting with Tesla and so their areas of interest is generally around speed of infrastructure deployment and how we can help there. We just launched with our partners at city permitting an expedited process and permitting where they say with this new process, if it's for EV infrastructure, we can get the permit done in five days. That that's a huge savings. in traditionally how permitting works with Nissan very early on in the Nissan leaf, I went over to Tokyo and talk to their strategic folks about what vehicle to grid looks like for a utility. They did a follow-up meeting to us in Austin with their global strategic leads. And from that meeting they said our next generation of leaf in the US market will remove the limitation of using the leaf as a vehicle to grid access, as a vehicle to grid point. Because historically that had been one of the barriers. Once again, we see any barrier. And if it means I go to Tokyo and talk to the people I think is better, I'll just, I'll just do that. And that and you, was one. And
1: when you say vehicle to grid, that's the, the technology that allows a vehicle to power the home.
0: Yeah, power the home. So vehicle to X would be more appropriate. So basically first generation of EVs typically in their warranty would have a thing. If you use the energy for anything other than turning wheels, you avoid your warranty. And we said that's a barrier. And also when you look at utilities, it's really about major charges and discharges. And so a lot of these vehicles, for example, to get to 60,000 mile warranty looks at, for example, the first generation uh, Volt, they estimated they have 3,800 complete charges and discharges. So that's why we don't want you to every day to an artificial charge and discharge because you're playing the market or whatnot. Nissan kind of understood really what demand response means to utility is 14 to 20 times a year during the summer with 20 to 25% of the battery. I've talked to Rivian. I really love the Rivian product. It's a very exciting product. They're putting infrastructure at parks. The the thing I don't like about Rivian DC fast, it's Rivian only. And so I'm really trying to get out of these proprietary networks and understand why they do that. They saw how much value Tesla only brought to Tesla. So they're kind of following that, but to be fair, you know, the, the level two is just going to be open standard anyway. It's more about trying to, you know, having that DC fast as, as a Rivian premium, if you will. I've talked to several of the of strategy folks at Ford. I think what they have planned and what the platform of the Ford can be from a utility professional. There isn't a vehicle out there that's being delivered or even short term delivered that has the scalability and the platform features. That's more exciting than the Ford F-150 Lightning. As a utility person, the size, the marketing, the capabilities, and the fact it's the number one vehicle in Texas, it's the number one vehicle in like 46 out of 50 states. Not the number one truck, number one vehicle. So you're having the industry leader going all in on their platform, doing some very interesting technical specifications and marketing, just as important. They're marketing out. We're not starting with like the Nissan Leaf, warranty thing. Well you better not discharge this and we'll avoid your warranty. That is that's a whole different thing to to start with. We're starting with, hey, how can we, you know, marketing is already promoting this. And I think the technology team is kind of catching up to those promises in some ways to help deliver those features ultimately to consumers and play nice on the grid and do everything else. And so uh one thing I will give a shout out to Polestar. Two years in a row, the unofficial feedback out of a lot of the great vehicles being tested at electrify expo polestar is just the the fan favorite people who drive those vehicles just love them love them love them so i'll give them
1: polestar for people that don't know that's a scandinavian
0: yeah it's i think it's volvo's it's a volvo owned or subsidiary or partnership those are fan favorites I think on the used market, if I were buying a used vehicle, I think the first or second generation Nissan Leafs are the best buy right now. They're great commuter cars. They're reliable. If you just have a, you know, the typical 30 mile commute, something or less, a Nissan Leaf is a, is a, is I would say I would give it the award for most budget friendly used vehicle on the market today. But there's, you know, I like them all for different reasons. You know, I, I I just like. I just, I'm just a car person. I like new vehicle. I also like, I'm, I'm an electric bike. i user. I traded in my car for an electric bike. I don't, I don't own a car right now. I get around an electric bike. Which, um, which brand? Uh, one up, I think is what it's called. And the reason why I got the one up is it doesn't look like an electric bike. The battery is hidden in the tunnel. So, and here in Texas, you can go up to a certain speed and still be in the bike lanes, but at some point you become a motorcycle it's a one-horsepower equivalent, so I kind of got really just right under that, and I think they call it a class two is what allows you to, to do that. So I got the max I could get and still be legal on our bike lanes in the state of Texas, but I also... Unless you know it's an electric bike, most people don't know it. So I just kind of—I I like the idea. It just looks like I have legs like Lance Armstrong, you know, <laughs> body by Roseanne O'Donnell and legs of Lance Armstrong. You just—you just zoom around. It's, it's a very say, fun as experience a,
1: as a as a cyclist and a sort of a ex runner because of knee injuries. All I could say is please increase the bike lanes in in Austin. The well, the
0: more, the there is area. a lot of. And that's a good point. And that's why we're pushing e-bikes. And if you buy an e-bike, we've just doubled the rebate for everyone. Now, we've greatly increased it, even so for our low-income customers. But that's also to capitalize on Austin is spending a lot of money on bike infrastructure and a lot in these transportation bills. And that's another thing is why when we do outreach events on e-bikes, we go to a lot of East Austin and East Crescent. And we really talk to a lot of people. They don't think bike lanes are for them. They think it's gentrification. And once they do the e-bike tour, they get the free helmet. They see how they can do the, the Cap Metro bike share for $5 a month. And or now we have even bigger rebates if they want to own their own. Now they see, oh, these bike lanes are for me too. I can get to my grocery store. We also will put in baby carriers and other like transportation things. So we've had mothers before. that I, I didn't even know this existed. And some great just stories and photography around moms with their baby and the carrier off the electric bike, and really just kind of having a moment of what all this could potentially offer for them to go to the grocery store or move around. Do you think they'll come?
1: I mean, mean, Texans certainly love their cars. It's one thing I will say that you see a lot of trucks here. Do you foresee a day that there might be bike-only streets in Austin?
0: Well, I think that it's less about bike-only streets and more about protected bike lanes. For example, we're talking right outside of South Lamar and I've lived off of South Lamar for for years and years. It has one of the worst, scariest bike lanes I've ever seen in my life. It's like a little 12 inches right next to busy car. There's nothing between you. But the good news for you is you may or may not know you are also a recipient of one of the soon to be developed smart corridors. So Austin is part of a, of the major bond initiative of roughly around 420 million is dedicated to seven smart corridors. South Lamar is a smart going to be a smart corridor. So what does that mean for you? Is you will have a designated bike lane with a physical barrier between you and traffic. So it's really less about having the whole lane and more about having a physical barrier between you and traffic so like and a Shore, wide enough creek lane. Like a yeah, yeah. shoal creek, though, you just have that. And sometimes the physical barrier is also a lane of parking between you and then the lane itself is a comfortable two lanes you know both ways it's really about having a safe and convenient so and that is the thinking of our austin transportation department i have friends and colleagues there who are just great sh- stakeholders and collaborators and all things ev but and the e-bike space is they get it they they understand they they've gotten a lot of feedback they know what works and what doesn't and it's really about protected lanes but I think from a larger perspective, there is a movement and thought of, at some point, cities surrendered their lanes to cars and just brought in all the traffic and then pushed pedestrians to the sides. You're seeing, especially in Europe and other countries, you're seeing a kind of a movement to take back. And it's not just about bike, it's just about no cars, So pedestrians and potentially pedestrians and bikes and, and other micromobility as a way to just increase the customer experience or the pedestrian experience and as a way to take back ownership away from the internal combustion engine, away from cars of being on these right-of-ways. So maybe we'll see those, maybe we'll not. During the pandemic, we launched a few trials where we did close off lanes to to vehicular traffic. We actually had a random one (laughs) around the corner here, but then also in some downtown those there was a lot of data received from most of those have all been removed and kind of opened back up. But that was kind of also an interesting take is during the pandemic, when we're seeing less cars, what is it going to look like if we just physically now remove and just give it back to, to people on bikes? If you could ask so people in Austin or Texas to change
1: any form of behavior to help accelerate the transformation? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you're doing on the sort of supply side, but in the demand side, what would you like to see people
0: change? One is a ride and drive. Give it a chance. Go to the buyer's guide, look at new and used so you can kind of get a sense. But then actually, whether it's an Electrify Expo or go into a dealership or a Tesla showroom, test drive an EV. That would be the number one thing to ask for. What we find is once people drive them, it's the torque, it's experience, and having that battery weight close to the road makes you feel a lot more secure and taking sharp corners. It really is from a physics level, it's the fundamental difference between riding around on a lawnmower and riding around on a golf cart. And so if you've ridden on those two and thinking about taking a lawnmower to, you know, do 18 holes versus a golf cart, it's kind of what you're doing from a physics perspective of having to just just give it a try. Yeah.
1: Okay. A lot of cities. I mean, you're, you clearly have been recognized for the amazing work that's been happening here and the leadership that you've shown. Are you in contact with other cities like New York that maybe have similar initiatives but maybe further behind in terms of how you can collaborate, not at a federal level, but more across state level between different cities?
0: Yeah, so one is I talk to city utilities and cities all the time. And then organizationally, the city of Austin is in a lot of uh, formal kind of city agreements. What we found is, especially addressing climate change, there was a period of time where we are not necessarily aligned with our federal leadership. It was the cities moving the needles, so Whether the C40 initiative or other city-led initiatives, I think is, so there's a lot of great collaboration space between cities in Texas, big cities, small cities, big cities globally. To address everything from climate action to what's working in transit and mobility to other, you know, I'll just categorize a smart cities initiative. I, I did co-write a book published by Springer called Smart Cities, and that was basically based on my experience of being part of a smart cities pursuit team with the mayor and other city leaders on a uh, program to change transportation, but also the, the climate aspects of, of, of transit here in Austin. And I just learned a lot from that as well. And so the short answer is yes, there is a lot of cross-collaboration. There's a lot of convening authorities that are very good at bringing in other cities. And it's just a core part of my job. I talk to other cities all the time. I talk to other utilities all the time, both public uh, utilities and investor-owned utilities. Cool. Okay.
1: My goal with the podcast is to engineer serendipitous connections and start to create these, what we're calling, random collisions of ideas are you open to us connecting you with other guests or connections that we meet based on our belief that there might be potential value down the line?
0: Of course. And what I like about the, the, the premise of your talks is when I go to a, a conference, I typically look for the tracks that I know the least amount about. I don't go to a conference, even though I may be speaking at it, and go to all the EV tracks. Like I'll go to a track that maybe is sustainable buildings or it could even be waste management or just something else. So I like the synergistic approach of learning from other folks that aren't necessarily in my industry. At some point you get preaching to the choir. When you bring a bunch of EV people in, I'd rather learn a new way of thinking of someone doing something very cool, but maybe in a completely different out outcome. You talked about, you know, storytellers around homelessness issue and problem and other I think there's best practices in all industries that we can learn from so the short answer is definitely of course cool
1: okay well we'll probably also continue to tap into your wisdom experience and your network to help us build our action engines for progress as we go forward with this experiment so before I ask you the final question I just have to thank you for your time your generosity your amazing insights ideas wisdom sharing your experiences and wish you all the best going forward with Austin Energy and the transformation you've got underway. So the final question is who do we interview next?
0: I think that's an excellent question. I do something with my team. I call it the VIP speaker series where we have a staff meeting and we invite someone who we don't record it and it's just for a small team and invited guests so it's not the purview here. And so it kind of makes me think about who I want to invite to just talk to my own team in an intimate conversation. And I would say two people kind of come to mind who I've had on our show, our show of an audience of 15 people, 15 to 25 people, who I think are just always uh, inspiring and doing interesting stuff. So one is a, a colleague, a friend named John Soiring, former IBM executive. He is now a major investor of the Swan Impact Network and his areas in Swan which is a social investment organization is around energy and water. And he also has a specific medical area is interested in related to his personal story and his mom. But I mostly geek out with him on all things, energy and water. And I have the opportunity to learn something new every day, typically be the dumbest person in the room and learn a lot. And that's just one person. It doesn't matter what I pitch at him quantum computing or some new micro generation or what's going he just has a real depth of, of of knowledge he he also just i think has an interesting life if he's not here in austin with swan impact he is you know paddle boarding this complete circumference of the great lakes or in patagonia hiking around so i think he's just winning life right now i would say the other person who i was just really inspired by who we brought on the show is the chief of staff to the city manager here in Austin, Jason Alexander. And he's been a friend of mine for a long time prior to his current role of chief of staff. So I've kind of seen him and his career kind of grow up over the years. And he's just always been one of those those people who I've just kind of leaned on. And when when I brought him the show, I say the show. <laughs> my team staff feeding to present. I mean, I've had former mayor I've had the former mayor of Indianapolis, I've had police chiefs. I kind of do what you do, but I just do it for a small audience. I bring in interesting people, and then they just kind of speak and we have an intimate conversation with my team to try to inspire them. And so, you know, we've been doing this for years before we even knew what a podcast was, I guess, and that we don't record it. We just we just keep it in our hearts. What I found fascinating about Jason is So one thing to understand about Austin is we're, unlike New York, we're not strong mayor. What the mayor is, a lot of the day-to-day operations include who hires the police chief, et cetera, is done by the city manager. The mayor and the council members choose who the city manager is and is not. So that's their ultimate authority. But a lot of the day-to-day operations is, is done through the city manager and city manager's office. So one, I'm just putting in perspective of why the city manager's office in Austin may be a little bit different than city manager's office in New York based on our how we're set up to governance in Austin. And being the chief of staff is he's involved in everything. So if it's anything from a police shooting to homelessness to when the storm hit in Texas and storm outages, he's just involved. He is guy on the spot. But but what I found most fascinating is the personal dimension of his journey, of how we get, and still just, I think a lot of us out there have just, you know, doubt, are we doing the right thing? You know, even are are we supposed to be here stuff? And I think he just kind of really opened up to just, and I think it resonated with me and my staff to just just kind of on just things around mental health and what it means to serve. And just a real sense of honesty. And I would say a a sense of humility and and what it means to kind of, kind of serve. And so I thought Jason was a great speaker on our, on our limited series on that. So those are the two I think that have most recently, and they've both been on quote unquote my show have most recently and kind of inspired me to think out of the box. And I, I think you'd like them for different reasons. I, I did stump John though, when, when, when he was talking to my team. And the team just asked so many, and I have amazingly smart people on my team. I I I really am. Any accomplishment is a hundred percent due to the team. I have less than one percent of the impact. And so a lot of smart people, and they were just hitting him with questions, right? And and he has a smart technical answer. So it's kind of point, John. What can we stump you with? You know, I I don't think I've ever asked you a question, and you just don't have an in depth knowledge. He, he's just a, a database of knowledge that way. And, uh, his answer was something along the lines that, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll, <laughs> that's good. And something I the lying is, um, I don't know how relationships work. I mean, he's a single <laughs> guy. And so maybe that's where we stumped him. But yeah, he, he's just, just a really interesting guy. When he was IBM, he had over 10,000 people reporting to him to include a lot of the innovation IBM was doing. So he knows all about Watson and, you know, some cool technologies, but, but the swan stuff is really what's driving his boat right now. And then Jason from from just a great story there. Cool. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks.
1: Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.